Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, back on the podcast is Dr. Robin McCutcheon, Associate Professor of Economics at Marshall University. And her website, which I highly recommend you check out, is linksync.com. That's L-Y-N-C-S-Y-N-C.com. And on March 11th in 2022, at the Baywatch Resort in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, she's going to have her ninth annual Liberty Symposium, which is a teaching and research conference, and it's titled Education is Independence. I love that title. So give this a listen. This is uh, a discussion we just recently had. We cover a number of different topics. We, we talk about the economy. We talk about education. We talk about freedom. And uh, it's wide-ranging, well over an hour, so please check it out. Give this a listen again. Share it far and wide. And I'm certain that it's going to be food for thought for a number of different people. Gosh, I'll tell you what. I've got a, a number of different things, of course, and then you can just say whatever you'd like regarding whatever subject. I wanted to talk about um, the upcoming school year here, and I, and I was I was curious as to how Marshall ended its school year, and any news that you've heard about what's going on there now, any any upcoming plans? Because again, as far as just some outside observations that I've made regarding Miami University, I know that they're, they probably can't constitutionally, um, or legally rather, force the jabs on returning students or staff members, although I'm certain that they're trying. Um, I think the same is true regarding their social distancing policies and what they want to do regarding that and having incoming freshmen. And again, it it blows me away that there's even incoming freshmen coming into these environments. But, um, I'm, I'm just curious as to, as to what's going on at Marshall University and, and, and what you basically see coming in the fall. Well, the official news Um, that's been communicated across the university community is that um, the the push to have faculty and staff get the jab has reached somewhere around the 75 or 80 percent mark. So they're happy with that. Um, And but they're they're far below that percentage for students. I guess students have much more common sense than their elders. Either that or all the information I posted for students to read has spread around the student community. You know, it's not like students are stupid. Um, they, they spread news faster than the Victorian Internet. Um, so so that's, that's kind of where we're at as far as the jab goes. And I think there's some sort of um, tracking program that the university wants students to students and faculty to participate in. I'm not, I'm not sure how that's, how that's actually going to roll out. As far as masks, we're maskless in West Virginia. I don't know about the social distancing thing because I haven't heard any more information. I don't think it's going to be six feet distance. Um, I think that's falling by the wayside pretty quickly. And I'm reading this morning today, June 22nd, that the WHO, the World Health Organization, is now urging people not to vaccinate children, um, I guess under the age of 18. 
So I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how quickly this information about the ingredients of the three vaccines that came out, one from Pfizer, BioNTech, one from AstraZeneca, and one from Johnson & Johnson. I, I don't know how fast those that information of the ingredients is going to get around to people to have them wake up and realize that this is uh, this is a bad deal. So for anybody who's listening to your podcast, they should go and investigate the ingredients of these three vaccines because um, um, it's it's interesting what's in there. So let's see. So that's that's vaccines, mask mandates, six feet distancing. Right today. Well, or as of the most recent communication, we are supposed to be back to face-to-face. I'm sort of taking a wait-and-see attitude, and I'm preparing for either scenario, back face-to-face, or we've got to go back um, virtual. But I think in in the absence of of another uh, scare pandemic coming through, I think think we will be back face-to-face. So... I, you know, I'm just sort of sitting back at the 30,000 foot level, just watching, eating my popcorn and enjoying the show. There you go. Yeah. I think that one of the scenarios, of course, that that I've been looking into and, and sort of connecting the dots and doing my best to connect these dots has to do with, again, the upcoming fall, not just in the education field, but in a number of workplaces. Because now we have, and again, this was something that wasn't covered in the mainstream media a while back, and it's something that I covered on the podcast, but a number of different school teachers, of course, entire entire faculties would, would line up to take these jabs. And then many of them would fall ill, if not all of them would fall ill almost immediately afterward. And then the entire school, if not the entire school district, would have to close down for at least a week upwards of two weeks because they couldn't staff nor, you know, fill in with substitutes those positions because everybody was ill. So knowing the the short-term and even long-term effects of, of receiving these jabs, I have a, you know, there's a, there's a consistent working scenario here that seems to be playing out that's remarkably terrifying. And I wanted to ask you about the economic angle of this. We've we've heard is a long setup, so my apologies. <laughs> but That's okay. The, the, we've heard some HR individuals and individuals, you know, there's a video bouncing around BitChute and it's been bouncing around Gab and a number of other places, but it's a woman who is in the oil and gas industry. And she's I've res- seen that one. You've seen that. Okay. So you're familiar yeah. with with her uh, human resources angle that's being taken by apparently a number of human resources uh, departments regarding staffing. If the people who and isn't that terrifying? If that's the truth, what this woman? Yeah. Who is highly placed and and she's like a temp agency almost, or or a, a headhunter um, looking for people to uh, fill in. Um, medium to high positions in the oil and gas industry. And if what she's saying is true, that two to three years out, 80% of the people who have taken this jab are going to die. Uh, I, I just don't even have, I don't even have the words to imagine how horrifying that's going to be. 
So, you know, if we look at, if we look at, say, Marshall University, for example, that has, oh, about maybe 540 professors, 80% of them um, took, took the jab, so that's, what, about 400-ish? And if 80% of them die, that's, what, 325 people? You couldn't run the university. You wouldn't be able to find people fast enough, adjuncts, fast enough to fill the classes, to, to teach. Let, let, let's go back one step before before, okay. before die. I be, jumped ahead. Because, you no, know, that's okay. <laughs> Just one step. Because I, I agree with you. I, I think that many of them, unfortunately, are going to have such an adverse reaction to, to a compromised immune system, in particular with the, with the full face-to-face -face going on. Let's let's go. Let's take one step backwards on them just being ill and being absent. I mean, you're going to have some that are absent and ill, and some that are not. Uh, what would that look like? Because again, you can't you can't have substitutes in higher education. Right. Well, that's that's a contingency we never we never plan on. Um, yeah, there are no sub there are no substitute professors hanging around. Now, uh, you know, unlike the K through twelve system that has probably a pool of substitutes that they can pick and choose from. That's that's not how it works at university. If you are ill or and it's going to be a, a long term thing, usually between the professor and the department chair and and sometimes upwards into associate deans, there has to be a contingency plan that's worked out pretty quickly because students have paid for these classes. We had, a, for an example, we had a professor, gosh, almost a decade ago, um, the poor man got very, very sick at the uh, beginning of the semester, a couple of weeks into the semester. He literally could not teach. And after, after a couple of days of him missing class, the chair of the department got everyone in the department and said, okay, we've got to cover his four classes and, um, you know, who can do what in which class and how quickly can we pull this together? And it was probably another week before everyone in the, in the department was pitching in just to fill in for this one professor. So now imagine out of 16 professors, 80% um, of them aren't there. <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's almost too comical to even contemplate. But no, that would that would stop university teaching, like right now, and then and then take it into a little bit wider circle. I'm sure you heard about the four uh, British Airways pilots who dropped dead after their second jab. Yes. Okay, so. What I heard, uh, <clears throat> what I heard today, is that British Airways went into immediate talks with the British government and found out that um, their liability insurance isn't even going to cover them. And and that's something that I had encouraged my students last semester in the spring semester to check out because I had students saying, you know, um, is my life insurance going to cover me if I get the jab and I die? And I said, I don't know. It's an experimental jab. You, you got to call up your your insurance company and find out. Well, it turns out for British Airways that not even their health insurance is going to cover them. So you know, this is this is a big tangled mess. 
um, I haven't heard anything about any of, uh, of the um, health insurance exchanges, whether or not they will be covering people for adverse effects from the jab. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, just, I, I don't even know if anybody's talking about this yet. Um, I don't think they are. I mean, we're not hearing this. Yeah. We're not hearing this anywhere. And uh, again, with with eighty percent of a staff in in higher ed or or in any line of work taking, I, you know, one of the, I'll just I'll say this: one of the avenues too. When I when I'm I'm, I'm thinking about who's taken it, who hasn't, and then of course what it's doing to people. And and how people haven't even considered again the the short term ramifications within a six to nine month period of a completely compromised immune system. I think about grocery stores. Take, yeah. take Kroger's or, for example. Kroger's told their employees take the jab or leave. Right. And if you're not going to take the jab, you have to wear a mask all of the time. And then. Even then, we're not going to stop pressuring you from taking the jab. You're going to eventually take it, or eventually you'll leave. So you take any grocery store, let alone a chain of grocery stores that has the same blanket policy like that, you're not going to be able to staff a grocery store. Well, what about supply chains? Exactly. You know, so um, I, I, I think the... The, the short-term effects of the jab are just now beginning to be seen. I mean, uh, the VAERS system through the CDC has listed something like 6,000 deaths in the last four months after the jab started being given out. Now, 6,000 deaths, that's seven or eight or ten times as many. All the other deaths combined for the last two decades in the VAERS system from any particular vaccine. And that system um, is only reporting 1% to 10% of actual cases. Correct, correct. And so I, th- I think, um, and I think I read somewhere maybe two or three weeks ago that the first British citizen who had gotten the jab had just died. Um, now, you know, who knows? But an autopsy of someone who recently died from the jab showed that these spike proteins was in every organ of this poor person's body. So I, I think that I think that um, I think that the insanity and the hypnosis that has come over people to just get in line, get in the queue, and and fall off the cliff for this jab has just been, to me, shocking and astounding. I, I don't understand why, well, I do, but, but you know, the common sense that, that should have been prevalent in people to stand back, say, you know, this is just an experiment and I'm not going to take it, that, that, that should have been more rampant than people lining up for blocks and blocks. So I think the short-term effects are being shown. Let me give you another a personal example, please. My um, my mother-in-law, in fact, my entire in-law family has had the jab. And my mother-in-law is pushing eighty, wow. and within two months after taking the jab, she was diagnosed with uh, a cancer 
in her breast and lymph nodes that was aggressive. It wasn't there before the jab, and it just showed up. Yep. And and so, you know, I, my husband and I, and I will admit, neither one of us has, have had the jab, and um, and I'm not taking it. I don't, I'm pretty sure he won't either because in a, it's an experiment. And after all the research I've done on the ingredients, and again, I encourage your listening audience to go and look at these ingredients. They are poison. Um, it, it's, it hit us right in the face that it's possible that whole families will be wiped off the face of the planet. Whole families. Generations. Gone. Um, we heard within within weeks or or a week of of pregnant women taking the jab of them having miscarriages, stillborn babies, perfectly fine before the jab, jab taken, baby dies in utero. You know, a spontaneous abortions, spontaneous miscarriages, and uh, out of China, and this was reported by the New Zealand News. Just a couple of days ago, out of China, the main uh, baby formula factory uh, was told cut back on on um, producing baby formula because we know that women will not be able to conceive within six months of the jab, and maybe not for two to three years after. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. That means an entire generation of women either may not be able to have babies at all, or who knows what's going to come out of them. Remember thalidomide that ran through uh, Europe in the 1950s? Well, you're a little bit young for that. but My, but par my parents have reminded me of that and, and told me about it that. Didn't, right. It yeah. didn't even get to the United States, and the FDA said, nope, nobody here taking that. It was a nightmare. Because the babies were coming out mutated. Yep. So I think the whole idea, the whole idea behind sticking yourself with some experimental cocktail of um, who knows what it is. I don't even want to call it drugs because I'm, I'm not even sure that they are drugs. But um, that's just that's that's just insane. So coming back to the faculty and staff at Marshall University, eighty percent of the faculty have had have had the jab. And I'm looking around at familiar faces, all of whom in our faculty Zoom meetings, I think almost the entire College of Business has had the jab. And I'm looking around going, wow, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of funerals to go to. I think I'm going to be cried out before the end of this. And, and I, you know, the other day when I was thinking about how stupid people are, it occurred to me. You can't really blame these people if they're listening to the mainstream media because everyone is, everyone in the mainstream media have been promoting taking the jab. And um, it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a level of national psychosis that I could only equate to what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Anyone who spoke out against what Hitler and the Nazis were doing was censored, silenced, or removed, disappeared. And and that's kind of the level of psychosis that I see 
running or had been running through our country. Now I'm seeing more and more people waking up. You know, people at the WHO just today came out and said, oh, oh don't, don't give the jab to the kids. So, you know, maybe... Maybe some people are beginning to wake up. I'm, I'm hearing little dribblings of truth coming out of um, Fox News. Not a lot, but a little. Um, Dr. Fauci, we haven't seen in a week. You know, he's, he's still trying to save face. That, that man's not going to be able to walk down the streets. When people figure out that these pharma companies deliberately made a vaccine that was meant to do harm, in my opinion, there's there's going to be hell to pay. These these the the people who have been wronged and hurt are are or or dead. That's this is this is going to this is going to boomerang and backlash on the deep state like nothing you've ever seen. You know we we. We've been talking, of course, about the supply chain too, and and you you just described higher ed and how higher ed can't possibly fill these positions with individuals that fall ill or even die from from these jabs. Take that right into the medical profession with doctors and nurses. It's you know it's another it's another quagmire. Um, a, a doctor friend of mine with whom I, I wrote an, uh, an article, I think back in 2019, about direct primary care. When I asked her several months ago, was she was she advocating the jab? She said, no, not at all. I'm, she said, in fact, I'm not, even, I'm not even stocking it. I'm telling my patients, please don't get it. And I said, but, you know, did your patients in fact, get it. She said, I've had, I've had some come to me saying, well, I didn't listen to you and I got the jab and now I've got all these problems. My God. Health problems where there, where there were no health problems before, no health problems. And so, um, I mean, this, this is scary. Um, the American association of, uh, I think it's, uh, the American association of surgeons and physicians, when they ran a survey, I'm, I'm not sure, so don't quote me on that group, but it was recently put out that they ran a survey through all of their network of doctors and fully 60% of them refused to take the jab. So there's at least some smart people out there. But what happens, so we've got about maybe a million physicians, licensed physicians in the United States. This is a rough estimate, but let's say half of them took the jab, that's 500,000. And if 80% of them have, have um, uh, bad health outcomes to the point where they can't practice medicine, that's 400,000 physicians. Boy, that's quite a physician shortage. Yep. So, and, and we haven't even gotten to the, the medium and long run economic effects of this. So you brought up supply chains, but imagine, let's say we're, since we're taking Kroger, for instance, imagine um, 80% of Kroger's uh, workers dying or not being able to show up to work. How are they going to run the stores? They're not. How are they going to stock shelves? Yep. How are, so, so, so the economic effects of this 
have the potential. I'm not saying they will, but the, the potential for this is it's devastating. And they're, and they're not and they're not even going to be able to do their little, um, you know, their little sideshows and their little projects, so to speak, that they that they tried out last year with the we'll park in the parking lot and then we'll come out and give it to you, or we'll home deliver Kroger food to you, or we'll do this or we'll do that, or you know, the online ordering. I mean, they're not even going to be able right. to do that. Right, right. Um, I think I read somewhere over the last couple of months that Amazon. Uh, made a big push among all of their workers to get them all jabbed. <laughs> Whoa, that's that's gonna. I mean, you know, talk about talk about karma coming back real quick. Everybody complains about Amazon, you know, taking up space in the marketplace. Well, what about if Amazon's not even there anymore because they can't run their business because they insisted on their workers taking the jab and they. Uh, I don't even want to say the next sentence. So. I mean, this, the, the economic consequences of all of this, if it, if it shakes out the way it could, I'm not saying it will, but the way it could, it's, it's I think we're going to be going back to having our own home gardens and doing a lot of canning. And hunting season is going to be phenomenal. But, but, you know, you think about how in the, the entire economy is like its own ecosystem. Um, and if you change one thing about that ecosystem at the fundamental level, you, you, you can kill it. So does that make sense? It does. And, and I'm not saying none of, I'm not saying any of this will happen. What I'm saying is, is that if it is true, if what I what I have researched turns out to be true, and I hope I'm wrong about this, I really do. I desperately want to be wrong, but this, this could have not just far-reaching consequences right now, but long-term consequences for decades into the future. I mean, we weren't there. Well, I don't know unless you believe in reincarnation, but you and I weren't standing in the middle of Europe during um, the Black Plague in um, 1350 but we know we know from having or, or we suspect from having um, various archaeological digs that upwards of half half the population of Europe was killed off during the Black Plague and there were three of them that ran through Europe in the course of about 75 years half of the population died the only reason we had the Renaissance was because half the population died and therefore there was more food available for the remaining 50% that did make it, that did live through the Black Plague. And because they had more food, they were living longer. There was uh, a, a, a better environment for people to um, study what, what we would call fundamental sciences. But the only reason that we had the Renaissance was because half the population died off and it took another 150 years to really get the wheels rolling again. So, so fast forward 700 years. It is within the imagination to think about how, this, how these 
how these vaccines, and put vaccines in quotes, how these vaccines could wreak horrible long-term economic consequences. I mean, I, 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 in my own, like I said, in my own family, um, one out of, you know, the one out of 10 is now seriously ill. We don't know how it's affecting the, the um, teenage girls in the family, you know. Um, one of the, the doctor of the, the father of the mRNA, not the vaccine, but the mRNA, uh, um, I can't remember the proper word for it, but he, he has, he, he was the person who, um, first manipulated it. Gene manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what he said was, we know that these, um, spike proteins that are generated by the jab are settling in huge numbers in the ovaries of fertile women, meaning that those ovaries are now going to malfunction, which means that that woman probably will not be able to reproduce, which means that the next generation will not be born. Frightening. Right. Yeah. Let me, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say along the same line, because we've talked about higher ed now and we've mentioned the economic impact of that. And we've met, and again, it, it clearly falls right into K-12. My prediction is that, again, last year was a test run, that it was a purposeful test run regarding the immediate closure of schools, that it was a test run for online education in the environments that never had it in the first place. And that it was a test run to see how all of that would work. And now, of course, you have varying opinions, people saying it was a lost year, quote unquote. Uh, that's preposterous, I think. I don't think it's a, it was a lost year on anybody. I think that if a person wasn't learning over the last year, year and a half, then they, were, they weren't alive. Um, there, there was plenty to learn and lots to learn. Uh, but... I wanted to stretch this into into the home buying industry as well. If you have homeowners who are paying mortgages and they start dropping like flies, so to speak, and the family can't pick up that home mortgage or there's no clear trust, legal trust laid out to where the home falls to the individual within the family who's still alive. You're going to have individuals selling homes, or you're just going to have banks taking over the home, 100%. And I'm, I, the name of it has has slipped my mind, but I want to, It's not blockchain, but it's something like that, where uh, certain agencies, very wealthy agencies, are attempting to buy up homes from individuals at two to three times the property value of the home. BlackRock. BlackRock, thank you. Uh You take something like that into account, on top of individuals dying and and not being able to pay off a mortgage or or pay the property taxes and own the home. You're talking about looking at a a street of homes where maybe there's 100 homes on that street and maybe there are 10 to 15 people living in that neighborhood while the rest are overgrown. Right. Right. It'll be like the 2008 housing crash on steroids. 
I mean, just this morning, um, as, as my husband and I were taking our two mile walk, I said, you know, and, and this is me being sort of gallows humor about the whole thing. You know, I could have the home of my choice within a couple of years. If you can afford it. You know, <laughs> well, think about there are eight, uh, there are about 84 million single family homes in the United States. I'm not saying that all of them would go on the market at once, but say half of them did. 40 million homes because the homeowner is either dead or can't pay the mortgage and the bank, bank takes it back. Now, the bank is not in the business of being a real estate dealer, which means that we're going to see massive numbers of homes trying to be sold on the market. Well, as the supply increases, the price decreases. And, and you know, I could imagine buying a home for pennies on the dollar because the bank needs to get rid of it. Unless someone like BlackRock comes around and takes all the property. Well, BlackRock, BlackRock right now, from what I've been reading in real estate news, is paying upwards of 24 to 50% over asking price. So they're, they're, they're putting out chunks of money. What happens when the value of that home decreases because the supply of homes being dumped out on the market increases? BlackRock still, someone is still going to end up paying the property taxes for the market value for which they paid for the home. But um, I don't know. Does BlackRock have $26 trillion to buy all 84 million homes? I, I don't think so. I mean, that's an awful lot of money printing. That's the size of our U.S. economy. <laughs> So I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not saying that this is this is the way um, the the real estate market is going to go. But um, imagine with me for a minute if it is very if it is true what the Biden administration is saying that about a hundred million people have gotten the jab and eighty percent of them are gone, uh, you know, passed on in three or four years. That's eighty million people. Yeah. So I, I think I think so. That just just wrapping your head around the ripple effects out into time um, is is enough to make is enough to make you sit down and go, huh? Well, there's there's definitely going to be impacts all the way around, not just on the economy, um, but for the people who remain. And I'm not. I'm I'm honestly. So if anybody thinks that I'm, you know, hoping for this, I'm not, because what it means is not, not only is my, my husband's almost the entire family gone, but my family is gone, like dead. And, and that's not something that I would wish on anyone. I also know that, um, over in England, the, um, uh, the British, I think it's the British Ministry of Health is now ordering um, more, well, I don't even want to call them body bags, but they're ordering the building of more morgues because they anticipate within two to three years a need for more morgues. Now you tell me why. 
Yeah. Um, so, so, yep. I mean, I, 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 gosh, you know, I don't, I don't really want to be a Debbie Downer about this. No, I know. I mean, I think that, I, I, I think I, that at some point you have to be realistic. You have to be pragmatic. Right. Right. And, and, and talking about this with, with an objective angle and, and, and putting opinion aside has got to happen here because we're way past feelings and opinions. There, there are, oh, yeah. there are too many facts out there that exist regarding all of this, and to not sit back, look at it objectively, connect the dots, is actually and potentially a bigger killer, because then right. you're you're in a position where you can't prepare, you're in a position where you can't prevent, and and all you're doing is is hopping from one lily pad to the next when someone jabs you in the back. Um, right. Yeah. But but let's let's go back for a quick minute to your to your statement. Um, I've been listening to your podcast, and it didn't occur to me until you said it again that last year was a dry run for how does how does uh, the K twelve system survive without any buildings? Now, what 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 did we hear last year? through um, people coming out. And so, for instance, in California, um, neighborhoods were getting together and creating basically one-room schoolhouses for their for their students of the same age. So, like, they would get all the 12-year-olds together. They would hire a teacher to come in and teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and maybe music. You know, one, one teacher for each of those subjects that the students gathered together sometimes literally in a one room and they would get math a couple days a week or reading or writing grammar English that kind of thing and it and it was I thought it was kind of interesting that it was coming out of California but parents have been extremely ingenuitive this last year um, and they also got involved with what their students were doing in the classroom, which is why we see this great big pushback against critical race theory now, because the parents had a year to see what their students were doing, and they started saying, hey, this is not reading, writing, and arithmetic. This is propaganda. Right. And they began taking the education of their children back into their own hands, and we're, we're now seeing some of the ripple effects of that, where entire school boards are being forced to resign because they're pushing uh, critical race theory or Black Lives Matter Marxist stuff. And so I think that um, I think that this is really a good thing, Sean, because we know that the next generation, our students, our children, need to have the proper kind of education in order to become productive members of society, which means that they need to learn proper math, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, not not woke math where one plus one might equal five if you feel like it. So I think this is a good thing. And, and when I heard you say it again today that it was a dry run, I was thinking, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but I think it backfired. I don't think that, um, I don't think that whoever pushed this realized I think they forgot how creative Americans are. And I, so I think that this could be one of the best things ever that happened for our school children to actually 
get out of that communist education system and go back home to the one-room schoolhouses where they can actually learn, actually be educated. So I'm, I'm thinking this is really kind of a good thing. I mean, we, you and I have discussed how is it, do we change the education system? Well, you, you can't change it because it's a communist system, right? So the only thing to do is rip it all out by the roots and start over. Right. So this is, I, I, I'm beginning to think this is a good thing. Now, um, let's, let's imagine for a moment that it, that a hundred million people in the United States have not had the jab. Let's say it's a much smaller number. Then that means that the potential for disruption is on a much smaller scale. And so, um, and so I think that, I think that the parents who awoke up last year to what kind of education their kids were getting in the K-12 system and said, okay, that's, that's enough of that. We're going to rearrange our lives so that one of us is home teaching our students, our kids. I think that's going to become much more prevalent. And, and I can't think of a better way of entering the the, this century than to actually remove that communist K through 12 system and replace it with uh, free markets working in the home. I mean, the best teachers for our children are their parents. That's, that's because the parents, there's, there's no teacher alive with a class of 30 that loves each and every one of those children like the parents do. Involved parents. Yeah, involved parents, and and yep. that will become that will become more the main. Um, yeah, I sure hope you know, so. Because when you think, yeah, because when you think about it, um, we have more two parent families than we have single parent families. Yeah, there are are a lot of single parent families, but again, Americans are ingenuitive. I could see in neighborhoods where maybe there's, let's say, half of the half of the people, half of the households in the neighborhood have a single parent where one parent says, look, let's, let's figure out a way to have, um, one parent every day of the week, take, take the, take the kids and, and have the teaching. And then we'll share out, um, kind of like a flexible work schedule. We'll share out the teaching of our, of our, of our kids. Yep. Americans are very inventive. We're going to we're going to be able to figure this out. And we're going to do it in a way that is best for our kids. And and the ripple on the knock-on effects out into the future are are going to be good. So, so I think I think I see some good silver linings here. It might take a while. It might take a while to get there. But there's something else that we're not that we haven't taken into consideration. What if, what if cures for the vaccines are found? I mean, I'm already kind of when I when I peruse through some of the um, some of the natural health food um, interwebs, I'm I'm seeing people say, you know, you could you could do a combination of. Um, these kinds of food to counteract what's going on inside your body from the from the jab. 
again, you know, some of this is, is going to be uh, experimentation, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, the, we are incredibly, um, we Americans are incredibly inventive and entrepreneurial when it comes to finding solutions for problems. And so I'm, you know, just put it out there. What if? What if there is a cure? Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me that there already is one or multiple cures and that those are purposely being hidden from us. Uh, because, again, we know that, I mean, we know the track record of the medical industry. It's it's big business. It's not, they're oh, not, yeah. you know, they're not interested in a cure because then they go under. They got to keep those right. breast cancer walks going and they got to keep those ice bucket challenges going to raise all that money that just goes into the pocket of a horrible, horrible human being. And Well, and think about, think about what is about to be exposed here. Um, I think that there are a fairly good number of people who know consciously that big pharma has been in the business of, of pharmacology just for the money. So how would you expose those businesses as being in it just for, just for greed and gain? This, this would be the great, this would be the best way ever. Look, we've got these five big pharma companies and all they've done is put out drugs that don't cure us, but keep us ill. Yeah. You know, yep. if you were going to expose them, how would you do it? If you were going to expose every company in the United States, not, not, not least of all the world, to expose those companies who are really just in it for the profit, that they don't care about their customer, how would you do it? This would be one way, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, look at yep. Woka Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't take much for them to lose money, does it? No, not much at all. And so, how do you get how do you get an entire world, seven and a half billion people, to wake up and see that some of the companies that that, that we've been doing business with are are really not the kind of companies that we want to do business with? How would you do it? This would be this this whole COVID thing is I think we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg. Now, being in academia, being in economics, I have heard for decades, decades about how this or that company is just in it for the money. I mean, look at Walmart for example. I'm not saying they're a bad company, but Sam Walton's been gone for a long time. And um and his original idea was to source goods locally and maybe nationally that could be brought in for poor communities so that, how did Sam Walton put it, so that the housewife can afford a nice package of underwear without putting out her family budget. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think we, I think this is a good thing. We are being woke up to and I hate to use bad grammar, but we are, we are being woke up to companies and corporations that are just in it for the greed and the profit when we know that that's not necessarily a good thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with profit, okay? Profit is a good thing, but when you do it to the exclusion of your consumer's benefit, 
Now, you know, if you're doing it, regardless of how beneficial it is to your consumer, then maybe you've stepped over the line. I, I think we're becoming a little more conscious of, I don't know, um, a higher responsibility, and I don't even want to call it the common good because there's nothing common about the common good, but imagine with me for a minute that that 80% of consumers in the United States kind of suddenly came to their senses and said, wow, why am I doing business with Amazon? They're, they're not especially a good company. They're sort of working against the benefit of the consumer. What would happen? The exact same thing that we saw happen with Coca-Cola when they when they went woke. People were like, well, I don't have to drink Coke. I'll go over here and drink Dr. Pepper. Or 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 here I'll give you one, Fanta. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or or water. Or or water from the tap maybe. Yeah. You know, it's not even bottled water. So I think I think there are some good things that are going that are being revealed right now that people are kind of they're beginning to wake up and becoming conscious of what's going on around them. And as people become conscious of the companies that are actually doing things that are detrimental to their consumers, they're going to shift how they spend their money. And those companies will go out of business, as they should. Agreed. The companies that, you know, Starbucks used to be a company that cared about its consumer. And, um, and when they stopped caring about their consumer, people kind of woke up and went, well, I don't know why I'm buying this expensive coffee at Starbucks. I'll, I'll just make coffee and put it in a thermos and take it with me, which is what we used to do. Right. And so, you know, consumer activism is, is a, can be a good thing. Our, we vote with our dollars every single day. We can unvote with our dollars every single day, just as people have done with um, Coca-Cola and not buying it. I mean, in my, in my Kroger, Coca-Cola, they're, they're now on sale because they can't get rid of them. People won't buy them. Yep. Let, let me ask you this, so too, because th this is uh, – well, no, you can go ahead and finish. Go for it. No, I was just going to say, I, I I see some really good things from this, and I've been, you know, I, I know the potential for the bad, and, and with my active imagination, I can imagine a lot of bad, but I can also see these silver linings coming about because we had COVID, because we had a year to kind of sit back and go and look around and go, whoa, well, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really paying attention, but now I am. And I think this is a good thing. Along that same tr uh, train of thought on, on, on good things, and I wanted to mention this too because it, it goes back to what we were kind of discussing earlier also. And then I have something else which is kind of a uh, <clears throat> not very positive thing, but it's worth discussing anyway. Uh, I personally think that this has the potential, again in a good way, to drop the... I don't want to. I don't know if it's over reliance or unnecessary procedures, so to speak, regarding the business of "quote unquote" qualifications for particular lines of work. A person has to have a degree, or a person has to have a certification, or a person has to have a license, or a person has to have this or that. I've always viewed that, to a large extent, 
as not just being unnecessary or um, a way for government to to receive more money. But I've always viewed that, again, as, as really just being bigger government and a way for government to have its claws in an individual from multiple different angles, whether it be local, state, federal, whatever it may be. I think that as, and again, we're talking about this in a hypothetical, although the writing is on the wall here, for countless businesses to lose countless people and, and, and have them not be able to fill those positions, I think it's in the realm of a possibility that those lines of work will start to throw out particular quote-unquote qualifications um, because they'll have to fill these positions and they, they'll know that people won't have all of these certifications and licenses and and what have you. What, what do you think about that? I think that's entirely possible and it couldn't happen to a, couldn't happen to a nicer group of businesses. Um, you know, there are very, there are very smart people who don't have a college education. In fact, some of the smartest people I know are people who barely got through high school. Um, they're, they're smart. Maybe they don't have a lot of book learning, but their common sense makes up for so much of the propaganda that our, that our college students get, get shoved with. So I'm, I'm, I, I could see totally your point of view. And I think that that would be, that would be a renaissance for business, right? Because instead of getting the college student who has learned how to warm a seat for four years, but doesn't really have any actual real life experience, these businesses will be tapping into young people just like we used to do 40, 50 years ago where the 16 year old would, you know, go get a job flipping burgers at McDonald's and then rise up through the ranks. All they've got is a high school education, but they've learned that business of McDonald's. They've learned every aspect of how that McDonald's works. And, and you know, 10 or 15 years out, that person goes from flipping burgers to running a store to becoming a regional manager to perhaps owning one or two of his own or her own stores. Or even, I mean, or even doing it out of their own home. Or doing it out of their own home. Yeah. Um, so, so there are lots of good things of Americans, and in fact, people all over the world are very entrepreneurial. All they need is a, all they need is a just a chance, just just an opportunity to get rolling. Um, one of the things that made America great was that we did not have a huge class of college-educated people. We just didn't. So how did we get all these businesses? How did we get, how did we get all these uh, small businesses? Well, people just started their own business. They looked around their community. They said, "Golly, I don't see anybody who's um, who's selling strawberry jam. I think I'll just grow my own strawberries and sell my own strawberry jam." I'm just you know, for example, um, you know, some of the greatest success stories came out of uh, people who started their own businesses in Amway or Shakely, or Avon, or Party Light, you know? These are companies that had a, a product or a service that they said, you know, for a small amount of money, you can you can be one of our distributors. So, so 
people are extremely entrepreneurial. The, the, the drive there is to make their own life and the life of their kids and grandkids better than what they had. That's always been, when I was growing up, that was always what the grown-ups were saying to me. My life is good, but I want your life to be better. And, and, and I think that all parents are like that. I can't imagine the parent that looks at their child and says, my life is good, but I want yours to be shit. They're, those parents don't exist. They, they just can't. Otherwise, we'd never learn to walk. <laughs> yeah. And you I know, so parent, parents always want their kids' lives to be better, which is why we have a world that, that is so, so much better. Uh, so much better, a higher standard of living than we did even a hundred years ago, across the board. Yeah, so it, it's a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And and one of the one of the other good things that I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see again with with these businesses, if not just completely crumble as a result of their own malfeasance. But I'd love to see the same thing happen with these insurance companies, and then. Those startup small businesses again, I, I would I would like to see that shift into the medical profession, so that people can actually spend such a small amount of money on something that really doesn't have to be expensive at all. Let alone on top of paying constant monthly insurance, which is paid for under the guise of it covering what a person needs. Um, to either prevent an illness or cure an illness. And, and one of the stories that sticks in my head from this America's Frontline Doctors lecture that I attended in Cincinnati where Dr. Simone Gold was speaking, um, one of the individuals in the front row asked and they said, you know, I, I know that, um, that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are, are available through your site and with a phone call or two, uh, it can be delivered to my front door in less than seven days. They said, does our, and, and she, she openly said this, she said, one of the questions I always get is, is, does our insurance take it? And she leaned forward and yelled into the microphone. She said, no. And that's the point. The point is, is that we don't want insurance companies involved because they're the problem. So, right. so we bypass all of them on purpose. We make it dirt cheap. And I mean, it really is. It's a $90 consultation. Uh, th that you pay for once you fill out the form, and then you pay $200 and a six-month supply of, of zinc and hydroxychloroquine shows up to your front door. I mean, right. you, you can't beat that with a stick because if insurance was involved, you're still paying a monthly insurance fee. You're still paying, you're still paying for the drug. Uh, right. This way, it cuts out the middleman and makes the drug less expensive. If that happened... Exactly. If that happened with everything across the board, in a perfect world, you're 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 wiping out, you're wiping out the insurance game, which I think, frankly, is 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 an unnecessary game. Well, you know, the the whole insurance industry, and I'm probably going to get myself blacklisted on this one, but in my opinion especially health insurance, the whole insurance industry is just a big scam anyway. Right. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost as bad as a Ponzi scheme. But let me give you a real-life example of how um, doctors, physicians are getting around 
not not dealing with insurance. Um, my friend, Dr. Lori McCoy, who uh, practices out of Russell, Kentucky, is a primary care physician, and she's she's part of um, the direct primary care physicians network, which means she runs her doctoring business like a business. She has a monthly subscription, and um, so, for example, uh, two people age 55 and older, it's uh, about $50 a month for each of them, so that's $600 a year per person, $1,200 a year, and they have 24-7 access to Dr. Lori, 24-7. Because they've already paid the subscription, they can email her, they can phone call her, they can Skype with her, you know, they can use telemedicine, they can have access in person 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A lot of the, um, the drugs that older people need to have for um, diabetes and such, I mean, you can go to her website, it's advancedprimarycare.com. You can go to her website and find the whole list of drugs that is uh, included in that monthly subscription price. Now, um, the, the, the physician who came up with this idea was a, is a guy by the name of Dr. Brian Forrest, and he practices out of Apex, North Carolina. He came up with this idea because he was so sick and tired of... of spending eight minutes per visit, per per patient visit and not really getting to know the patient. He was so tired of filling out the ICD-9s and ICD-10 forms. He spent more time filling out forms than he did visiting with his patients. That he, he sat down and he figured out that even though he had 5,000 patients, he, he was losing money every time he added another patient because, especially another Medicare patient, because Medicare was not paying him enough money to cover his cost of doing business. So he came up with this monthly subscription model in about 2005. And he, he started telling some of his other doctor friends in his family care physician network, you know, his new idea. And he came out with a blockbuster, um, a blockbuster article somewhere around 2007 or 8 where he said that he could break even on four patients a week, a week, four patients, one per day, and take Friday off. And he found that um, he found the ideal number of patients for himself was somewhere around 500, not 5,000, 500. And so... Little by little over the course of the last, say, almost 20 years now, this has spread like wildfire. So, for example, in some of the research that I've done, if, if I go back and look at, um, if I go back and I look at physician data way back in the early 2000s, what we would call, it's not exactly concierge medicine, but that's where it first kind of showed up. There was less than 1% of the doctors in the United States that were practicing that kind of that kind of um, subscription medicine. Fast forward almost two decades, and this is growing like wildfire. In fact, it's growing so fast. Kaiser, the big insurance company out in California, finally sat up and went, whoa, what is this? This is just recently. This year, they, they kind of went, oh, man, 
this this subscription medicine is something we've got to get into. We're going to hire a whole bunch of doctors, put them on salary, and charge our patients 200 bucks a year subscription. But then, you know, we'll add in other charges like medicines that and so forth. And then we can enlarge our patient network. But, but that's not why the primary care doctors went this way. The primary care doctors went this way to be their own solo physician again, solo practitioner, which used to be, uh, that was the only kind of physicians we had back in the 60s and 70s, and then managed care kind of reared its ugly head. Um, and so we're coming back full circle. We're coming back to the point where physicians want to be physicians. They don't want to be paper pushers. They don't want to be secretaries. They, they certainly don't want to deal with insurance companies. They'd much rather the patient pay them a $50 subscription and have that $50 in hand than wait 90 days to get reimbursed a lower amount from some insurance company or from Medicare, from Medicaid. So this is coming. This, this whole idea of free market medicine is coming, and a lot of this is going to be accelerated because of the COVID pandemic. I'll bet you anything, and I, I've got to go look at the data, but I would be willing to bet my bottom dollar that 90% of these direct primary care physicians did not get in on the jab and told their patients, don't do it, don't do it. Yeah, I would so, agree. And, and, I, and I, I also think, again, uh, another silver lining in this whole thing, and I'm, I, I would be surprised if this already isn't happening, but one of the thoughts that I had when I was watching all of these nurses uh, immediately say, hey, look, I'm being pressured to take this jab. I don't want to do it. I was trained to be a nurse. I want to be a nurse. Um, I've wanted to do this my whole life. I still want to do this, but I'm not going to take this and I'm not going to work here. I'd love to see all of those nurses join together in their local areas and, and start up something like that where they make house calls. Maybe two nurses or three nurses show up to a house and say, you know, we're here. We want to let you know that we exist. We've started this little group. We've started this company and, and, and we're trained to do a number of different things. And if you need our help, go for it. I mean, that sort of already exists with uh, in-house home care or home care visits from particular nurses, in particular for the elderly or the handicapped. But, uh, you know, for the everyday healthy American, I, I think that's not a bad idea either. The, it's, it's coming. Yeah, I hope it has, so. It has. In 2018, in the summer, I, I, had the, I had the privilege of being the econ teacher for um, the uh, nurse practitioners who are getting their doctorates um, from Marshall University. And one of the projects that I had them do for the semester was to come up with a business idea and they could work with a, a partner. We, I had 30 students, so I figured, you know, 15 groups. And everybody partnered up and they presented at the end of the, their semester their um, entrepreneurial idea for a business um, based on their interest, their particular interest in nursing. And they had some fabulous ideas most of which were exactly what you're talking about, leaving the brick and mortar and going to the patient. I mean, I had a couple of groups say, well, we've already put in, um, we, this was such a fabulous idea, we've already put in for grant money to buy a, a van 
like a, a, a an RV where they were going to have um, medical testing analysis that they could go from county to county to county and set up in, you know, one or two of the largest cities in the county in West Virginia, and they would do medical testing for pennies on the dollar. Brilliant ideas. Yeah. So it's coming, you know, and the, and the more that we let our students know, you know, I know that you're here to get a degree in, I don't even want to say sociology, but I know you're here to get a degree in business, but I want you to start thinking how you can turn this degree from business going from an employee to a business owner. What can you do? Look around where you're living at. Because a lot of my students don't want to leave West Virginia, but they feel compelled to because they don't see any opportunities from employers. Well, there, there, there just aren't that many, which means that if you want to stay, you've got to, find a, you've got to find a way, a business to run that will pay you enough money to make it worth your while to stay. So most of the time in my classes, I'm saying, I know that you think you're here to learn how to be an employee, but I want to flip the switch on you and say, what can you learn here that you can turn into your own business right now? And I've had students start their own lawn care businesses. I had one student come to my office after a couple of weeks and he was starting a website. Um, I've had students drop by my office. One student dropped by and said, well, I like lawn care, but it's kind of hot. So I turned to natural remedies for killing uh, fleas and mosquitoes in your lawn. Oh, it's brilliant. You know, give me your card. Give me a bunch of them. I'm going to spread them around to all the rest of the professors. So young people are extremely keen to be let off the leash and just say, Take what you've learned, look around, and find out something that you love to do. Because that's the key, right? That was something that Dale Carnegie told us back in 1921 when he wrote his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, or Napoleon Hill, or Zig Ziglar. Find something you love to do and go do it. The money will come. Don't, don't, you, don't you worry about the money. It'll show up. But you got to find something that you love. Because then it's not work anymore. It's just something you can't wait to get out of bed to go do. So, so this is this is the thing that I see coming from the in-home one-room schoolhouse. Once again, we are little by little, we are we are going to have the ripple effects of an entire nation of shopkeepers, business owners, tradesmen, craftsmen. It, it's coming. You can see it. Yep. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think that, I mean, hopefully, you know, we were talking about the nurses and the, and the doctors and getting back to the basics regarding that, you would hope that the hospitals would then follow suit. Because, you know, you, you I, I personally think of that model that your friend, that, that, that your doctor friend has regarding a yearly subscription you know that uh, I, I think that a system like that has its limits, um, as positive and as awesome as it as it is. You know, if if that only goes so far and doesn't stretch into something like surgery, then then you're still paying massive insurance rates. 
And uh, then it just becomes one more payment. So it's almost as if if you're going to show up with a particular plan where something doesn't where something is more enticing and more wholesome, so to speak, than the than the big corporate system, the individual has to be convinced that what's being offered isn't just going to be one more thing to pay for. Right. You see what I mean? Well, I well so so some of the things that Dr. Lori does is she actually has a price list um, for just about everything. So, for example, to broken arm, fifty bucks. That covers the cast, the setting, and the cast, and everything. But what Dr. Lori has done is she has expanded into negotiating prices with hospitals. So if she has a patient, she was telling me about a patient that needed a surgery. And typically, if the patient had um, an insurance, I think for that particular surgery, it's something somewhere around $9,000. That's what the insurance company was going to pay. She negotiated a price one-tenth that, one-tenth with the hospital because the hospital realized they were not going to be able to get that money from the insurance company and they were not going to be able to get all of it from the insurance company and they were not going to be able to get it right now. Hospitals really are money pits, especially when it comes to working with the um, healthcare insurance industry. And so hospitals would rather have the money right in their hand they would they would get more of the money cash in their hand if they work directly with people like Dr. Lori and I and at least in our area the hospitals are now slowly very slowly um, going towards price transparency where they say cash in hand this is the price you know if you have insurance that's that's fine but if you don't have insurance you know this this is the smaller much smaller price that you would pay and we'll take payments because the hospital will still get the money faster that way than they would working with the insurance company. So I think this whole thing, I think the evolution of this is that it is taking us back to a, almost like a fee for service, but, but not really. And it's going to overall lower the cost of healthcare, even in rural communities like ours. So it's, it takes a minute for this stuff to roll out, and I think that I think that in the end, only the insurance companies that are truly honest are going to be able to survive. Um, and I think that I think that this COVID thing has exposed a great number of hospitals, or it will very shortly be exposing a great number of hospitals who who took in COVID patients because they were getting thousands of dollars in subsidies from the government for taking in COVID patients. So, you know, if the incentive is I'm going to make $70,000 if this patient is COVID or I'm going to make $13,000 if it's just um, because the person needed to have a surgery, well, I'm going to put them in as a COVID patient and get the $70,000. Yeah, and they're offering to pay for funerals if the person, uh, if the family allows the hospital to put COVID on the death certificate. Yeah, regardless if they died from a motorcycle accident or not. Right. right. So, no, all of this is going to be exposed. The, the people who are, the people and the companies are going, who are bad actors are going to be exposed as bad actors. And, you know, Sean, most people are pretty smart. But most people, 
maybe they don't have a college degree, but that's not that's not the indicator of smartness. Correct. The indicator of smartness is common sense used in a practical, reality-based life. And so most people are pretty smart. It doesn't take much to get people to wake up and catch on. And so we're going to be, we are going to be seeing the exposure of these bad actors. In fact, we already are. It's, it takes a minute to be revealed, but the truth will out. Yeah. And you, you can't keep it back. I agree with you. I agree. Along those same lines, and this doesn't have to be the end, but I thought about this as we were talking and it certainly, I think, bears mentioning because as I was mentioning the you know, everything that went on last year, in particular at the local level and the local response, a lot of people unfortunately enjoyed that local response and they enjoyed the government control and the mandates and the, uh, the, the overarching, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, totalitarian. Power and control. Yeah, sure. T- totalitarianism, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and people who have are in those positions got to flex their muscles for the very first time. Um, mm-hmm. One of the, my favorite genre of, of movie are westerns. And I've always enjoyed them since I was a little kid, and I still enjoy them to this day. And there, there's one of them which I enjoy, uh, along with a number of them, but it's, the movie is called Open Range. And it, has, uh, it stars Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall. And like many westerns, Individuals who are, are are tougher and have more common sense, and their heads on their shoulders, in particular from a moral standpoint, will roll into a town where a number of individuals are just cowards, and they don't want to stand up for themselves, and they don't want to stand up for their neighbors, and they don't want to teach each other to stand up for them, you know, f- for one another. In particular, when tyranny shows up, and there's right. a, and there's a scene at the end of the movie where. You, where the, these two individuals, Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall, have, have basically shot up the bad guys within the town, and then you finally start to see the townsfolk uh, in the background run down uh, one of these criminals and these murderers, and they, they shoot him as, as, as he's running away, and they knock him to the ground, and they keep shooting him, and you can see that out in the distance, and it becomes sort of this quick scene as to how a town can essentially take back control and sort of shake off the cowardice that they've that they've had around them, uh, you know, for a number of years, if not a lifetime. I'm not advocating right. for I'm not advocating for shooting uh, shooting politicians, but when I, <laughs> w- w- although that you know, we're, uh, based on the Second Amendment, if you read it accurately, we're certainly within our rights. Um, re- regarding that. If if what we've talked about here here is <clears throat> coming down the line, in particular within you know we'll just say the next six months, do you actually think that local areas in America, let alone around the world, are going to have the stomach for another go around of tyranny at, at the hands of local politicians? Ooh, well, I think. I think that what we're beginning to see, so let me start at the bullseye and work my way out. I think what we're beginning to see is people waking up around the country in their local communities to uh, 
malfeasance on the part of the people they trusted and voted into office to do the right thing, to have that uh, moral compass that they, they, they said they had. Right? Isn't that most politicians, they, they pull themselves off as someone who is morally upstanding. Well, we're beginning to see a lot of those people don't have that moral compass. And so that's being exposed right now at the local, state, and national level. I think that this experience that we're going through in our country is teaching us First of all, it's teaching us about our Constitution, but second of all, it's teaching us that we have for too long slept. We trusted people that we shouldn't have trusted. You know, um, um, wasn't it Reagan who said, trust but verify? Well, we trusted and forgot to verify. And I think that when we get all through cleaning up this deep state mess, I think that it will be drilled into our heads that, that we can never, we can never let people like this back into any position of power, from dog catcher to president. That we have to, we have to look at how these, we have to vet these people to within an inch of their life. If they don't have a moral code that's upstanding, if they have values that are contrary to what is good and noble and heroic, we shouldn't let them get anywhere near being on our political ballots anywhere. So I think this is I think this is a great awakening, and it's going to take it's going to take a minute to roll out. But I think at the end of this, what we're going to see is a constituency in the United States that is so awake it's almost like we're going to be allergic to bullshit. We are going to be so sensitized to people who are trying to pull the wool over our eyes that it, we are not going to let this happen again within many, many lifetimes. And we are going to teach our children and grandchildren to be sensitive, to be allergic to politicians who are evil, to politicians who want that power and control. I mean... Honestly, the people who we have sent to Washington for decades, we've sent them there because they say, first they say, well, I'm on the outside and I can make changes. And then they get there and they say, well, I'm on the inside and I can make changes. But the only changes they make are to their own bank account. And I think that we're beginning to see that. I think we're beginning to wake up to how we, how, and I'm saying we, myself, my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, shirked our responsibility for checking out and vetting all the way down to the nitty-gritty anybody who was on the ballot. So I think this is a good thing. We're, and this is another one of those great, big, broad silver linings that COVID brought to us, that, um, that we are seeing how by sleepwalking through life and sleepwalking through election upon election, that this is the result, that our country is being shoved towards communism. Shoved. Because we were, uh, because our attention was elsewhere. And we trusted people that we should never have trusted. And we kept electing them because they kept saying, trust me. Well, that's not good enough anymore. 
We're, we, we, all of us, are taking our country back. We are taking our power back because all the power in the country resides with we the people. We are governed by the consent of the governed and we can take our consent back. That's our responsibility and that's what we're doing right now. And that's why, that's why this is going to have a happy ending. It's not going to be tomorrow, but it's coming. And we are working out the details, each and every community, and you can see it. You can see these school board meetings where the parents get there and say, you have to stop this bullshit with Black Lives Matter and, and um, critical race theory. You have to stop. And they run those people out of the building. That's, that's the people waking up and taking their power back. No, we are governed by the consent of the governed. And when we see that fraud has been perpetrated, we take back our consent. Because a fraud means that the contract is null and void. Elections are a contract. And if one side has perpetrated a lie, then that voids the contract. And that's exactly what this last election was. It was a contract. Those people that ran and lied to us, we're finding them out. They will all be found out. And, you know, there, there's, in, in, in the way back times, even as, even as late as the 1700s, if you were a politician and you lied to your community, you would not only be run out of town on a rail, but you were likely to be tarred and feathered. Yep. So... Um, so, so we are, we are ourselves waking back up to what is our God given responsibility to be consciously aware of what is going on with our elected officials. Those are our servants. They're not our leaders. They are our servants. And we need to start treating them like that. They're not going to serve us. We have to get rid of them and put in someone who will be a servant. And and we're doing that. We're doing that. And it's going to take a minute. I mean, this is a big, big country. Last time I drove across country, it took me several days. And there was lots and lots of land and people in between. And so this is a community by community. And that will, that will trickle up into the state by state by state. And we're already seeing that. I mean, how many states have banned critical race theory from being taught at any level in the school system? West Virginia banned critical race theory uh, last fall. Yeah. Now they so, just, now they just so, need to ban totalitarianism and everything will be okay. Well, that, that banning totalitarianism, that is a result and an outcome of people taking back their power from the government. And the states are taking back their power from the federal government. You watch and see. That federal government is going to be so small and so weak and fragile that, that there, there will be lucky to be anybody going there to D.C. So it's, it's happening, but it is a grassroots from the ground level up kind of deal. And, and I see that it is going to take a little while, but people, this is why people need to be awake and aware. They need to get involved somewhere, somewhere in their community, even if it's just knowing all your neighbors up and down the street. You know, um, I had lots of politicians coming to my house over the summer and into the fall saying, vote for me. 
<laughs> one, one of my favorite questions was, oh yeah? How do you feel about the U.S. Constitution? Uh, 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 okay, I'm not voting for you. Right. You know? So, so that that's what I'm talking about. You, you, yep, we're getting back to our roots, our roots of what made us a great nation. And what made us a great nation was we had a moral code that we followed. We wrote our greatest legislative instruments, the U.S. Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, based on that moral code. And, and we're getting back to our roots. This truly is a renaissance of the United States of America. We are, we are taking back our power. The people are taking back their power. And the net result of this, way far out, the ripple effects that will be felt for years and decades beyond this is the whole idea of a socialist society is going to be chucked into the dustbin of history. And, and that's, that's what I see. That's a good thing. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, I agree with you. I think conversations like this have to happen. One of the things that, you know, that was consistently brought up in, in my readings and a number of other things that I'm hearing is that the absence of discussion has, uh, has really been one of the larger problems here as well. Well, and that's, that's why, that's why the governor shut down the bars. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the American revolution was started in the bars and pubs, leaflets and pamphlets, you know? So, but they can't, you know, you, you just can't hold a good American down. Not for long. They might be able to fool us some of the time. They can't fool us all the time. And, and just like Yamamoto said, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. And the deep state is about to meet the sleeping giant, which is no longer sleeping. That giant is awake. He's looking around and he's saying, I don't like what I see. And we're going to stop this. And we are stopping it. So, so yeah, plenty of conversation to be had. Um, please let me, if you wouldn't mind, please let me let your audience know about my conference that's coming up in March. 100%. percent March 11th. Lay, 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 lay all your information on them. Go for it. Okay, so it's uh, March 11th, 2022. Um, people can go to my website. It's linksync.com. That's L-Y-N-C-S-Y-N-C.com. And I have a link for my ninth annual conference. Everyone is invited, professors, students, everybody who is interested in learning about how to take back their freedom, how to become debt-free. It's not just a conference for research and teaching. It's a conference for people who want to be in the conversation about how do we take our country back? What's the next steps? So linksync.com. And also on that webpage are um, links to my freedom lectures, which are my lectures in my Atlas Shrug class and my economics lectures and all of the interviews that I've had over the last several years, even even with your podcast links. Thanks so much, Sean. Hey, thank I, you. I really appreciate, you know, you really are a warrior for freedom, and I just want to acknowledge all the things that you're doing, taking the slings and arrows for those of us who are working behind the scenes, 
you are an awesome tip of the spear and, and just you have my full and devoted support. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.